When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, on the first day that the COVID-19 vaccine, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, is being administered to patients outside clinical trials for the first time in the UK... What better day to discuss whether we've got a shot at hope and a return to normal? Now, there's a question mark at the end of that return to normal, and I'll leave it to our speakers on today's podcast to decide that for us. The podcast was taken from our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus, which gives you, the listeners, the opportunity to ask your questions to the leading thinkers around the world. We had Sarah Gilbert, project leader of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet, Dr. Tim Spector, founder of the Zoe COVID app, and the award-winning science journalist Angina Ahuja, who's been writing and reporting on the pandemic since the beginning of the year. It's a fascinating conversation that illuminates a lot about vaccines and how the next few weeks and months ahead will pan out, and we hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Angela Ahuja, and what a week it has been. So yesterday, the UK medicines regulator approved the first COVID vaccine for use in the UK. It might be rolled out as early as next week. And we also have the new tier restrictions coming into force after the lockdown was lifted. So we have so much to talk about, about where we've been and where we're going. And we have a stellar panel to help us navigate it all. So let me introduce them. Sarah Gilbert is Professor of Vaccinology in the Nuffield Department of Medicine at the University of Oxford. She's the Oxford Project Leader for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And she's also worked on vaccine development for other diseases, such as Nipah virus and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. And because MERS is another coronavirus, she was able to switch pretty quickly to working on a vaccine for the, for the uh, pandemic virus. I'm also delighted to say that the Financial Times has named her as one of the women of 2020. 
We have Richard Horton, who is editor-in-chief of The Lancet, the world-famous medical journal, and his journal published many of the early papers on COVID-19, so early that it was before it was even called COVID-19. And Richard is also the author of The COVID-19 Catastrophe, What's Gone Wrong and How to Stop It From Happening Again. And he's also been, as many of you will know, a vocal critic of the UK government's pandemic response. We also have Tim Spector, who is Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, and he founded the Zoe COVID Symptom Study app, which is used to download your symptoms. You can log on. There's 4.3 million users, and I'm one of them. You can go on, log on your symptoms and your test results. And I think that uh, the data from that app is up to a week ahead of the ONS figures. So it's an absolute goldmine of information in real time of what's happening with the coronavirus. He has received an OBE for services in the pandemic in October 2020. And, and he's also written four popular science books, including The Diet Myth and Spoon Fed. So in terms of the format, this event is going to run for one hour. For the first 40 minutes, I'll be in conversation with the panellists and hopefully they'll be in conversation with each other. And for the last 20, we want to take your questions. So without further ado, let's go back to the beginning. And I want to ask you, Richard, first of all, I just want to talk a little bit about the beginning of the outbreak. When did you grasp that this was something that was going to be really big? Thanks, Angela, for that. The first... Um that we read about it was these news reports that were coming out in early January, and we have a Beijing office. And we got in touch with our editor in uh, that office and said, can you get in touch with China CDC, National Health Commission, and find out what's going on? And China, although it's a country of 1.3 billion people, actually the number of people who exert any power and control over health, it's actually a very small uh, collection, and we know them all very well. And so we said, look, do you want, is it possible to write this story up in any paper? And in fact, we ended up publishing five papers in the last week of January. Two papers describing the clinical characteristics of the patients, a paper describing person-to-person -person transmission, a paper looking at the genetic sequence and the relationship to other coronaviruses, and then a paper from Gabriel Lung in Hong Kong talking about the risk of a global pandemic. And it was really when I read the first clinical paper, that's when I started to get worried. Because in that first clinical paper, the entire story of the last 10 or 11 months has really been played out. And it was about a virus which we didn't know that was causing severe disease, tipping hundreds of patients into hospital, onto intensive care, uh, multi-organ failure, apps, you know, no treatment, clearly no vaccine, out of control, and really, really serious clinical challenge and public health challenge. And I think it was when I was sitting reading that and I thought, my God, is our health system actually going to be able to cope with this? Do we have the intensive care unit capacity to deal with this? Do we have the public health capacity to deal with this? So that was mid-January. And this is one of the reasons why you said I've been a critic. I, I mean, one of the reasons why I've, I have felt very upset that we, if somebody had read that paper, January the 24th, that paper came out somebody had read that paper, I think they should have been a lot more on top of taking the whole outbreak seriously, and they didn't. Sarah, can I ask you, at what point did you decide that you had to drop whatever you were doing 
and turn your attention to this virus? Well, I saw the first notifications about the virus at the very beginning of January on a website that publishes details of outbreaks all over the world in animals and humans and and actually plants as well. And there was a phrase, SARS-like pneumonia, which was immediately of interest because I work on developing vaccines against what we call outbreak pathogens, things like Ebola and Nipah and MERS and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever Viruses that we know about, and they are all viruses, but we we know they're there and they've caused some outbreaks in the past, but they've been contained by the usual old fashioned measures of contact tracing and quarantine. But we know that sometimes there can be an unexpectedly large outbreak from one of these viruses that we've known about for years. And that's what happened with Ebola in 2014. So we've known about Ebola virus since 1976 when it was first described, and it's caused outbreaks almost every year since, but they've been very small outbreaks in rural, isolated areas. They haven't spread because they weren't in densely populated areas. But then in 2014, or probably at the end of 2013, actually, the virus did get into densely populated areas. It's got into cities, it started to spread, it was completely out of control, and then it took a huge effort to control that very much larger outbreak than it would have done if we'd had a vaccine to be able to use in that outbreak from the beginning. And there had been vaccine development going on for Ebola virus disease, but it was all aimed at um, combating bioterrorism, and it wasn't really directed at being able to control a large outbreak in West Africa, which was where the cases were happening. But that did focus the attention on this type of pathogens, and the WHO came out with their priority list. And so we had the sort of top 10 that we were encouraged to think about how could we make vaccines against all of these different viruses. And we can't do that by focusing on one virus at a time and thinking about making a custom-made vaccine for each of the viruses in a different way, the way we used to make vaccines in the last century. So the mumps vaccine, for example, was taken by isolating mumps virus from a child's throat and then gradually developing that into a vaccine. That takes a long time. We need to be able to move faster. So we started working on what's now known as platform technologies, which are very adaptable technologies that you can use to make vaccines against lots of different diseases. And the advantage of a platform technology is that you know so much about it before you even start. And then we started thinking about how are we going to deal with the the unknown virus that's going to come? WHO called it disease X. And we started planning to do that very first part of the vaccine development process as quickly as we possibly could. So we'd already been preparing to do that and thinking about getting into manufacturing. Well, what were all the other things that we needed to do alongside making the vaccine to be able to deploy the vaccine? Sorry. So, Sarah, at what point did you think we have to work on this now? You know, we've got to drop everything. Well, we didn't drop everything. It gradually grew. By about the 3rd of January, I was thinking, yeah, we're going to make something. We might not need it. It might not go anywhere. We didn't. Human to human transmission hadn't been confirmed at that point. But there's no point waiting until you're sure if you're going to respond quickly. You have to be ahead of the game. And so as the certainty grew that there was human-to-human transmission, the outbreak was spreading, we continued with making the vaccine. So we decided before the sequence came out that we were going to start straight away. And the weekend that the sequence, the genetic sequence of the virus was released, we got started, not knowing at that point how far we were going to go with this, but knowing if it was going to be any use at all, we had to go as fast as we could from the beginning. I wanted to move us on to the vaccine. This is, you know, this is the week we've had 
our first approval. And I want to ask you, Sarah, do you know what the timeline is for the approval of your vaccine? No, we don't know that. It's down to the regulators to make their own decision. It's been facilitated by the rolling review process. So normally a review of a new vaccine would take between 10 and 12 months. But normally the regulator wouldn't receive any of the information from the vaccine manufacturer until the dossier was complete and then they would start to look at it. In this case, all the manufacturers have been doing what we call a rolling review. So as soon as some of the information is available, that's provided because the regulators don't just look at the clinical safety, immunogenicity and efficacy data. There's a lot more that they have to scrutinise in addition. There's a whole package on preclinical studies that have been done with the vaccine before the clinical trial started. There's a massive amount of information on the vaccine manufacturing that needs to be scrutinised um, in an extraordinary level of detail. And then on top of that, there's all the clinical safety, immunogenicity and finally the efficacy data. So there's an awful lot to look at. But... Uh, the regulators are able to go more quickly if they receive each of those data packages as they're complete. So they've been working on all of them for, for some time and that helps them get to the end result more quickly. Are you hopeful you might get approval by the end of the year? Well, in our case, because we've been doing clinical trial in the UK, we've been talking to the MHRA very regularly since March because we had to get approval from the MHRA to start our first clinical trial. And we've done many, many, many amendments to our clinical trials as we wanted to extend them and make changes. So we've been in constant communication. The MHRA inspect the manufacturing facility where we made the first batches of vaccine that went into the clinical trial. And they've recently done a second inspection just this year of our clinical trial unit. We would normally only have an inspection about every three years, but they've done two inspections this year. So they've been on on top of all of it. And I hope that means that they will be able to um, complete their review process really quickly. And it would be great if it's by the end of the year, but it is always down to the regulators to make that final decision. Do you think we'll all be vaccinated by, say, Easter? Certainly not all of us, no. It's going to be a massive task to get the vaccines rolled out. There's the logistical difficulties Quite apart from the storage temperature of, of some of the vaccines that's needed, just getting the vaccines around the country to all the different vaccination sites and getting people in to vaccinate them at a time when we're still needing to maintain social distancing is going to be a difficult thing to do. So I believe the aim of the government is to get all the vulnerable groups on the list vaccinated by Easter. But that won't extend to the entire population. And I think until until actually we start to see mass vaccinations happening, we won't really have any clarity on how long it's actually going to take. Can I ask you, Sarah, on, on this, do you think we've struck it lucky that COVID-19 has turned out to be a vaccine preventable disease? I mean, we've had really a string of really good results, but there was no there was never any guarantee that that was going to be the case. You're right, there's no guarantee. But with a lot of the viruses that cause outbreaks in this way, they're fairly simple viruses. And it's really not particularly difficult to make a vaccine against them, but it does need to be done and the process needs to be completed properly. And there are other coronaviruses that infect humans. There's SARS that caused outbreaks in 2002, and there's MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. But apart from that, there are four coronaviruses that infect humans every year. They come and go. We get infections and we say we've got a cold and it can be a bad cold or it can be a slight cold. And that can be a coronavirus infection. And so from that, we don't have any vaccines against them. But we do know that we get reinfected. We don't get lifelong immunity to coronavirus infections because they can come back and they tend to come around every two or three years. But one bright spot 
from the beginning was the fact that we do have licensed vaccines against some coronaviruses that affect animals. So there's a coronavirus vaccine for cows that's very effective and there's one for chickens. So you can make a vaccine against a coronavirus. We need to do it for humans. We just haven't done it before. Okay. And one thing that keeps cropping up, because it's great to have all the vaccines, but it's not so great if people don't want to take them. And and one thing that I keep hearing is that, oh, you know, this has only been developed in 10 months. It's so fast. Corners must have been cut. I mean, how is it possible that we can make a safe vaccine in a few months? Because the vaccines that we're making are not vaccines where you start from the pathogen itself and modify it and test it and tweak it and do some small clinical trials and decide that it wasn't good enough and go back and start again. We're using a much more rapid approach now. We're using an approach where we know how we're going to make a vaccine before we know what the pathogen is. And then we just put the right gene sequence into it and move it through the development process. So the adenovirus vector that we use in Oxford to make the vaccine I started doing clinical trials with that back in 2009 for a flu vaccine project. So we've done first in human trials, you know, the first vaccination of a person with an adenovirus vector vaccine. We've done that multiple times over. So we've, I was asked earlier today, was it nerve wracking when the first person got the vaccine? Were you worried it might go wrong? No, because we've done this so many times before. We're, we're not breaking new ground here, really. We're just doing a slight variation on work that we've done previously. So there's a lot of information about the dose to use, the, the side effect profile, immunogenicity over time, all of that's known. And that's true with most of the technologies that are used. Now, the very new one is the messenger RNA platform. But again, that has been in development for some years and there have been a number of clinical trials. There aren't any licensed vaccines until now based on RNA, but there have been a lot of candidate vaccines going into clinical trials. So there was some knowledge of using that as well. Okay, and what about long-term safety data? Vaccines tend to cause problems if it's going to happen at two particular points. One is very soon after vaccination. And one of the problems that can happen with a different type of vaccines, if you're making the vaccine from the virus itself and you're weakening it so that it doesn't cause disease, but it does cause an immune response. In some people who have a compromised immune system, that can then cause problems. We're not using that type of vaccine here. You can have a very strong immune response after vaccination in theory, but you'll have that very quickly after vaccination. So with all the clinical trials that have been going on this year, we're well past that point. We're looking at, we've looked at the vaccine, thousands of people. And yes, you do get the normal reactions to vaccination with a sore arm and maybe a headache and you feel tired and it's over in a few days. So data on that happening in thousands of people has been collected. And the other time in theory when something can go wrong is when somebody who's been vaccinated then gets exposed to the virus. And that was something that happened in early RSV vaccine development in the 1960s. And we now understand why that happened. It's a particular type of immune response after the vaccination that is not helpful when you meet the, the pathogen itself. And that was something that was ruled out in the early development of the COVID vaccines. It was tested in animal studies before the clinical trial started. So those are the two cases where you might be worried about vaccine safety. And we're past that point with the coronavirus vaccines now. Excellent. OK, thank you. Um, Tim, you've been tracking, I think, something to do with the vaccine on Zoe, on the COVID app. Would you take the vaccine and... Do, do you know how keen app users are to take the vaccine? Well, we've um, we've done a few things with the vaccine. We've first set up a volunteer register and we had nearly a million people signed up 
which shows how amazing the UK population are and how keen they are to help. And I think, you know, hats off to them. And some of those have already participated in UK trials. And we're launching next week, basically an extension of our app to cover vaccinations. So the different types of vaccination, the two courses, and looking at the short term and long term potential side effects, but also whether people are likely to get reinfected afterwards, because it's not a it's not a, you know, some people will get reinfected after it. So it just reduces your risk. It's not an absolute thing. And, and, and this, the app will also allow us to look long term and look at some groups where there is a little bit of grey areas. We've identified, for example, you know, one in 50 people with long COVID who we know have had the disease, have presumably got antibodies and are still having clinical symptoms. And nobody really knows whether the vaccine is going to help them or make them potentially worse, could do anything. And so it'd be very interesting to study that group or may do nothing at all, which is most likely. But all these questions would be easy to answer with this app. Now we know that people are happy to actually enter this data for, you know, for months on end, which is a new thing for medicine, because generally people have done trials just for a few weeks or months, but they wouldn't expect them to be doing it a year later. Uh, on a daily basis. So I think this is a very exciting use of how we're going to be able to monitor what's going on and also the interaction with, you know, the flu, va- the flu jab and, uh, and this, there will be these occasional reinfections. And of course, you know, we're probably likely to get a third wave, my, my view anyway, before we get everybody vaccinated. Uh, and that'll be an interesting thing. These things could all be happening at the same time. People with having vaccinations, but not having the whole six-week protection they might need. And so lots of interesting real-life situations that would be different to trials. Um, and, would you, come out. and would you take the vaccine? Yes, definitely. No qualms about taking it. Um, uh, no, no problem for me. And I think it's really important that we, we do have you know, various role models around saying how, you know, safe we think these these vaccines are likely to be and um, uh, not get too obsessed with the novelty of them and we should be actually saying how great it is we've actually got the choice to have it with all these amazing new techniques and, and tools. Richard can I can I bring you in because they're, they're, some people are a little bit alarmed I think that money's involved when it comes to a coronavirus vaccine and I know that the you know many of the groups including Oxford have been very careful to say that they you know they don't want to profit they're doing it for good reasons you know to save the world essentially um, but what, what's your view on the idea of creating a pandemic vaccine for profit well i think i mean this is where the whole issue of public trust is so important and it's going to be critical to if we're going to overcome whatever level of vaccine hev- hesitancy we have and one of the one of my concerns, and actually all credit to the Oxford group because you didn't do this, but with the BioNTech and Moderna vaccines, we had press releases coming from the pharmaceutical companies primarily, and we didn't hear very much from the scientists. We were hearing from the CEOs of Pfizer and um, and Moderna, and and I think if you if if you look at the evidence on misinformation, there is no question that. Uh, industry sources of information 
are very easy to exploit by conspiracy theorists, by propagandists, to undermine confidence in whatever evidence you're talking about. So my concern is that if the message about vaccine safety is coming from an in, uh, primarily from an industry source, that's not the best way to build public confidence. Oxford didn't do that, and all credit to them. The scientists led, it was Andy Pollard and Sarah herself who were out there in the media talking about the results at every single stage, and that's great. But I totally agree with, with Tim. We need to have figures from all parts of our culture out there talking about the safety of the vaccines. Now, in terms of, in terms of profit, you know, we, we have COVAX, which is an extremely important facility, which is trying to overcome the fact that the, that the richest and most powerful countries can elbow their, their way to the front of the vaccine queue. And I hope that now we have President-elect Biden coming into the White House in January, we will have the United States join COVAX. That'll be a, a, a big coup. So I, I'm, not, I'm not worried, actually, about the involvement of pharmaceutical companies in this uh, and making a profit. They have to have an incentive to do that. And if they don't have that incentive, they're not going to take the risks. So I think that's a perfectly reasonable social contract, so to speak. It's about how you manage the messages to maintain public trust. And do you think that there will be a point where enough people take the vaccine that we can say, the pandemic is over. We're, we're, we're getting on top of it. Well, this is a really fascinating piece of epidemiology. So if you take the conventional infectious disease epidemiology for a virus with an R0 of 2.5, that would tell you that for a perfect vaccine, you need to get 60% coverage of the population for herd immunity. For an imperfect vaccine of, say, vaccine efficacy 90%, which is what we have, that tells you you need to get 67% herd immunity. But there has been some interesting work out there mathematical modelling again, you do what you want with that, that suggests that in the population where you've got different age structures, different patterns of social mixing across ages, that it may be that we don't have to get such a high level, 67% coverage for herd immunity. It may be somewhere between 40 and 50%. So the, the, the plan is that you've got to, first of all, protect against premature mortality. That's what we're doing with the prioritising the, the older citizens in our community and care homes and so on. And then you're trying to get to this herd immunity level. We're not going to do that by Easter, Anjana. That's going to take quite, quite some time. And I, I was uh, in, a, in a conference last week with epidemiologists. And Roy Anderson, who is one of the foremost infectious disease epidemiologists in the world, and was very clear that it's going to take two or three years to, in his words, mop up the virus. So let's manage public expectations carefully here. You know, it's not going to be that we're going to be able to drop these non-pharmaceutical interventions in early April as soon as Easter comes. We're going to have to keep on modifying our behavior as we roll the vaccine out. So let's 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 um let's be a little cautious in our advice sarah well i was just going to say that it's not all or nothing in terms of protection from the vaccine so the yeah. easiest thing for a vaccine to do and what probably all the vaccines are going to do well is protect against severe disease the kind of disease that makes you have to go into hospital and have a real put a real burden on the healthcare system so that's the first thing if we can stop the severe disease and stop the overwhelming of the nhs with so many people in hospital with covid that has a big 
impact on the rest of the country because then the rest of the health service can start to get back to normal and treat all the other patients that need treating for other causes of disease. And then the next level is preventing mild disease, which is not such a burden. And with there, we're more interested about the ability to, to transmit the virus and infect other people. So if we start preventing mild disease with a vaccine, we start having an impact on transmission. And that also protects some of the people who haven't been vaccinated. And then, then the third thing is, can we prevent asymptomatic infection, which is where we really have a much bigger effect on transmission. So it's not going to be that we start to get vaccines and suddenly the disease is gone and we don't have to worry about it. It's going to be a gradual reduction of the burden that this pandemic is causing, but it's going to take quite a long time to get to the end of that process. Can I ask all of you when you think we might get back to normal? Well, I think I I repeat, I think what Richard said that I think two to three years, I think we're going to have this as an endemic problem for at least three years. And it could be that, you know, we are going to need booster injections like we do for seasonal flu. I think people just need to get used to this idea that it's not boom or bust. You know, we can't suppress the virus, eradicate it with just these social measures. We've got to, for a while, live with it at a low level and do everything to minimise its impact on us. And uh, um, the only one, one thing Sarah didn't mention would be I don't think anyone knows the answer is whether vaccination is going to reduce the number of people with long COVID, which seems to be, in our data, the risk factors for that, as well as age, are the number of multi-different symptoms you had in the first week. So whether you have a multi-system disease or not, rather than the severity. And that would be, you know, I don't think we know the answer to that. We need perhaps more data from the trials, but that would be the other important thing, because that's the major public health burden of this disease. So rather than the mortality in the ICU, it's those one in 50 people that are having symptoms for over three months. But I I think we've got to live with this at a low level for a long time. Hopefully nothing as bad as as, uh, this year has been and we can treat it like a, uh, you know, a bit like just taking flu much more seriously. And, you know, there are people who think we've neglected flu a lot in the last few years in the NHS and haven't really built up capacity so that every few years we breach those 90, you know, we're at 99% capacity uh, seasonally. And uh, I think that's something that hopefully COVID might improve so that we we have sort out the staff and, and bed problems of the NHS. Okay, that's great. And it's interesting, Tim, what you said about long COVID, because that was one of the first questions that we had in from Mustafa was, was do we think that a vaccine will help against long COVID? Sarah, I don't know if you have any insight into this, whether it could help. There's two aspects to that. Will it prevent people getting long COVID in the first place? And will it help those who've already got it? So I would expect that it, if it, the vaccine will prevent people getting long COVID because it's going to protect them getting infected. Therefore, they won't get long COVID. But if they've already got it, that's not really to do with an active infection anymore. That's to do with um, ongoing symptoms as a result of that infection. And that's not the vaccine's not going to be useful for that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So as I say, we're going to, we're taking some questions now and we have another question here. Well, actually, lots of great questions. Will coronavirus mutations prevent vaccines from working? Sarah, I'm guessing you will be the person to ask you. Yeah, so coronavirus doesn't actually mutate particularly quickly. It's not like flu virus or HIV where there's a massive amount of change. And the mutations that have been noted are actually quite useful in able to be able to track the virus, but they're not really very significant in, in immunology terms. So over time, over, over multiple years, we might see that a new strain has drifted away from what's in the vaccine and we need to update the vaccine. But so far, we haven't seen anything that the antibodies induced by vaccination can't neutralise. And it's helped by the fact that the spike protein that everybody's using in their vaccine is actually quite a large antigen, got lots of targets on it for antibodies to bind to. So the vaccine will induce antibodies against lots of different targets. And if one of them changes, it doesn't really affect how well the vaccine works. What it could affect is monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are being developed as therapeutics uh, to treat people who've got an infection, but they could also be used as prophylactics. So for people who have a very compromised immune system and wouldn't respond well to vaccination, in theory, it's possible to give them monoclonal antibodies, uh, which can last for quite a long time and would protect them. But they are only recognising a very limited number of targets on the virus and mutations could escape from those. So they're, they're more likely to be affected than vaccines are. And Jana, could I ask Sarah a question? Of um, course. Sarah, what do you think of these spike variants, N439K, G614G? There are these papers out there for N439K, for example, that the virus seems to maintain its fitness while escaping antibody-mediated immunity, or 614G, it's got a slightly higher viral load affects younger patients. Do you think they're things that we should be worried about? 
There are things that we need to keep a watchful eye on, but um, what we've been doing is testing serum that's been raised after vaccination uh, with the with the coronavirus vaccine against those variants, and we see that it works against all of them. So, yeah, on a small okay. on a there are changes, but you also we also have a T cell response to vaccination, and that's not affected by the mutations nearly as much as the neutralizing antibody response. So I think we do need to keep an eye on it. We can't be complacent and say that you know this vaccine is going to work for the next ten years. But on the other hand, we haven't seen anything so far that's particularly worrying. Oh, that's great. That's great. Sarah, do you sometimes feel overwhelmed? At, do you, you feel like you've, you're, you know, you're having to save the world? You've got a lot on your shoulders. Well, I'm part of a really big team and lots of people come and joined us to work on this vaccine this year. And we keep adding to the team and because uh, we need to do lots of different things. So we need people with lots of different skills. And as a team, we're continually focused on solving the next small problem. You know, we're not sitting around waiting for a breakthrough. There aren't eureka moments. There's kind of problems that we have to solve. We have to work out why we can't get samples from one site to a, a, a test centre to get the antibody responses measured in the time that we need to do it. And how are we going to fix that problem? And how are we going to feed people when they're coming in to work really long days on the vaccine trials and all the supermarkets have got massive queues outside and everybody's trying to work out how they can go and get some food. Uh, so it's those kind of things that we've been dealing with. And just one thing after another constantly. So that's where our focus is. We're not sitting around thinking, gosh, this is a really big responsibility. We just get on with, you know, the, the next thing that has to be fixed. And there's always something, you know, computers breaking and uh, pipettes need to be serviced, but we can't get anybody in to do them because they can't come into the building. And there's always something. So we just get on with the next problem and the next problem and then the next one. And we'll get to the end of it eventually. So we'll do the worrying for you on that. And we wanted to ask, um, there is a question here. I'd be interested to understand the panellists' views on the rollout strategy. And in particular, should NHS doctors on COVID wards be vaccinated first. I am interested in this rollout strategy. There's been a lot of debate about whether it should be the most at risk or the the ones uh, you know the highest risk of exposure. What can I take your your thoughts in turn, please, Tim? Well, I can start. I mean, I think the important thing is that we saw it after the first wave that the reason that r- rates didn't come down quickly was that a lot of infection was still in hospitals. And there was a lot of hospital acquired infections. And there's some evidence now that about one in five infections are actually acquired in hospital. And so a lot of a lot of these cases come into hospital with often terminal illness and are actually getting COVID a few days before. So I think that's a really important source. And so cutting that out of the equation so that making hospitals much safer, I think, is really important. And we know from the, the, fir- the mistakes we made on the first wave where nurses and cleaners and everybody weren't, who weren't on the, on the COVID wards were transmitting all these viruses. I think it's important not just to take the COVID ward doctors, but actually everyone in that environment, because it was very naive to think we could actually, you know, just the people in theatre pyjamas were the only ones to worry about when actually everyone else was just going to the hospital canteen and uh, mixing with them, uh, etc. So I think, absolutely, we made some mistakes first wave. Let's, let's sort that out now. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of the hospitals are rolling it out to all the frontline staff followed by the, the second line staff. And I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. 
And then the care homes make sense. That's where all the mortality is. And then then the rest of the population. So broadly, um, you know, I, we haven't seen all the details, but it, I think I can't see many great flaws in it uh, at the moment. But I'd interested to hear what Richard's got to say on that. Well, I, I just would just as a word about NHS staff. NHS staff were very badly served in the first wave. I was receiving direct messages on Twitter from people up and down the country, not just doctors, but all all health workers. You know, they didn't have adequate PPE. Um, they didn't. They weren't having access to testing. They didn't feel that their hospitals were protecting them well enough, and they really felt, as one of them wrote to me, they felt like lambs to the slaughter. And and they've now they've gone through two now coming up to maybe a third wave. They're exhausted. NHS workers are exhausted and they're coming into a winter where it's already, you know, winters are bad, whatever the year. So I think it would be an act of supreme solidarity if we could get our NHS workers vaccinated as a priority. We need to protect them. They've given a lot for us. And I'm not sure that we've fully recognised what they have given. And I can promise you morale isn't great and they are fatigued. So I would definitely put them up in the front rank of priority. Especially if, as you think, Tim, there may be a third wave. But uh, Richard, can I also ask you, this is a question that's coming from Carolyn in Cumbria. Do you trust this government to safely and speedily distribute the vaccine to everyone in this country? Oh, I, I definitely trust the systems that we have for both the approval of the vaccine. The MHRA is is a I'm not going to say world beating because I don't believe in beating, but it's it's a, certainly a, a, an ex- excellent high quality medicines regulator. Um, it was a pity we got into the Brexit debate today, wasn't it? I, I really thought that was a, that was an unbelievable stumble. But uh, in terms of the systems, you know, to get the vaccine out is going to require hospitals as hubs. It's going to require our general practices. It's going to require our pharmacies. This is going to be a, a, a truly national response, and I absolutely trust in that. We've got a great health system, committed health workers who are going to make sure that this happens. I'm not quite sure who this question should go to, but Tim Phelps in Washington, D.C. asks, do you think we'll be able to travel by midsummer 2021? I think we'll be able to travel. The question is, at what level of risk are you going to take? And I think People have got to, it comes back to this whole idea of, you know, people want zero disease, they want zero risk. And this is what, unfortunately, a lot of politicians are promising people when they said, you know, schools are going to be risk free and hospitals will be risk free. They're not. There's always, but there's risk in crossing the road or, you know, uh, commuting to work. And and I think travelling, travelling has always been risky for picking up nasty bugs as anyone has gone to. Asia, Africa's founds out. This will just, you know, for a few years, it's going to be slightly riskier than normal. And uh, I think people just got to accept that. And, you know, you'll be going to some places that have less risk and some people have, have more. But you've got to accept, people have got to accept risk and put it in proportion in their lives much more than they are doing now. We're obsessed with this. Yes, you know, it's only COVID and forgetting all the other things. And for many people, Feeling they can travel, even in the, you know, their own country or go to another state or whatever, is so important for their mental state that, um, and feeling this idea of being trapped, you know, 
is causing huge problems of depression that if we're not careful, we always got to keep this balance right between all the other collateral damage of, of lockdowns causes on health. And, and that's all built into this idea of risk. People have got to have a more balanced uh, idea of risk. Well, Can Tim, I just add to that? Yes, go, go ahead, Richard. I just want to really support what Tim's saying, because, you know, sometimes we've thought, well, we look to the government to solve this for us. And now we look to a vaccine to solve this for us. This is also on us. This is about how we manage our risk. We need to have the information to be able to manage our own risk. And, and we know that if you're in crowded spaces or if you're in closed spaces or if you're in close contact with people, and especially if people are singing or shouting, then that is a potentially super spreading event. So you do want to be careful about those, those locations. But otherwise, if you can avoid those locations as much as possible, then you keep then you reduce your risk. But it's about us managing our risk. So, Sarah, can I ask you about your managing your risk because you've had your vaccine? So does that mean you're, so does that mean you're oh, sorry? I'm I'm apologize. I thought you. I thought you'd had the vaccine. No, I'm not allowed to have the vaccine. People oh. who work on the trials are not allowed to be vaccinated. I have to wait my turn and I'm going to be quite a long way down the list because I'm not a frontline healthcare worker. So I'm a, I'm a category one very near the bottom. So it might be a while for me. Are you, Sarah, going to wait until you've had the vaccine to travel internationally? Well, I will assess the situation as it arises. I mean, it depends where I feel like going and what, what the transmission rate is in that country at the time. I, I'll do my own risk assessment if I want to go somewhere. And I wouldn't go to somewhere where there was very high transmission if I hadn't been vaccinated or possibly even if I have been vaccinated. Great. There's another question here. If we're all vaccinated with different vaccines, does that matter in terms of our collective immune response? If they work, though. What matters is to get a lot of people vaccinated as soon as we can with a vaccine that's safe and has a high level of efficacy. And it doesn't matter which vaccine it is. And, I, and can I ask, because obviously we, we hopefully have some kind of exit strategy now from this pandemic, whether it takes maybe a couple of years yet. But are we in a better place for when the next pandemic comes? Let me ask each of you in turn quickly you know if you study the history of pandemics and i if you read laura spinney's book on the 1918 pandemic or mark book on the pandemic century you know one of the lessons about pandemics is that societies change after the pandemic has hit and lessons are learned you know, after the 19 pandemic, Laura Spinney very beautifully explains how health became a bigger priority in society. It laid the foundations for universal health coverage. You know, that you can trace back some of the political momentum for the NHS in 1948 from the response to the 1918 pandemic. So we are going to be we are going to be a different society. We are going to have different values. We are going to put priorities on different things. So I'm actually optimistic that history tells us that we will learn the lessons and that we will be in a better place. But it is, again, going to be up to us to make those demands, those calls on our politicians um, and hold them accountable for doing that. Tim, yeah. what, do, what do you well, think in terms of, you know, given that you've been at the sharp end of, of getting the science into policy and so on and monitoring it in real time, how do you think things will change for the next one? Well, I think having spent $300 billion on health that could have been spent on other things. Um, clearly, you know, 
the government has staked out that it value that's how much it values our health and i think that's really the interesting thing here that people have not weighed up well what else could you have done with 350 billion when you know the year before everyone says we've got no money for teachers we've got no money for the nurses we've got no money for anything and suddenly we do have because we found it because we had to i think it um, hopefully will have a, a knock-on effect on health and science and and the rea- and and some of these realities but obviously the downside is we're going to be in a re- you know in a in a sort of recession for several years anyway so um there will be this balance but you know having said that i was very hopeful but then the, the defense review comes along and you know we're spending extra money on defense which to me makes no sense at all so what seems logical that we should be spending stuff on our making sure you know health and those of the next generations is, is guaranteed and that we don't have this again and we improve our diet and all our you know all look at why so many British people succumbed and, and Americans succumbed to this virus about improving the health of our nation we might very quickly lose that if we're not careful and just focus on just having PPE or superficial stuff but I, I would like really to get to the roots of some of this and and look at you know why you know susceptible people have uh, we have so many susceptible people in this country rather than just focusing on having you know sprays and uh, other superficial stuff yeah so i i I, having seen policy in action i'm a a bit more cynical but I'd, i'd love to be proven wrong how about you sarah well we've been asking for years more investment into the ability to make vaccines rapidly so we could respond to a pandemic. And that wasn't really prioritised for spending. And we we could have been in a better place at the start of the year if we'd done some of the things that myself and other people have been asking to spend really very small amounts of money on in comparison to the 300 billion that we've had to spend this year. So I hope that we know now do get that investment so that we're better prepared for the next time. And it's it's small amounts of money in comparison to what we've had to spend. And we should be looking at how to protect ourselves better because there will be more pandemics. There's always going to be another pandemic. At this point, I think that's a great point to end. I want to thank the speakers, Sarah Gilbert, Tim Spector, Richard Horton. I want to thank the audience for for joining us on this, uh, for this brilliant panel and this brilliant debate. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.